This is Vintage Broadcasting. The following is a study through the book of Philippians. My name is Frank Goss. I hope this study proves beneficial to you in the days to come. I thank you very much. If you do not recognize this fact, I would encourage you to think about it. Living for others is at the very core of Christian principle. It differentiates us from the animals. We can make choices. Animals act and react by instinct, and we are not animals. We, of all creation, were created in the image of God. In Christ, we are free to choose. However, in sin, we are bound to instinct. Man has the capacity to live in Christ with a full and free will. However, outside of Christ, some anthropologists have concluded after years of study that men are more filthy than the beast, both morally and spiritually. In Christ, our concern focuses on the good of others. and We can seek to help the wounded and bind up the brokenhearted and clothe the naked, feed the hungry. We can welcome lonely people into our homes. And Christ said, whatever you do to the least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. Matthew 25 verse 40. One thing we see in Scripture is the fall of Satan. We need to understand this. The temptation to dismiss these things and concentrate on the task at hand such as I have to work and I have responsibilities, I have various obligations. This is what we are tempted to do. But these things can wait. I mean, serving others, caring for others, taking care of others. When I have free time, I will attend to them. I'll give my time to that. But you know what happens, don't you? When the free time arrives, you want to relax, kick back in your recliner, go fishing, get on the boat, take it easy. And these things, caring for others, never really happens. We live the majority of our lives for ourselves and not for others. What happens to me, my, and mine is what matters the most. My time is my time. The Western world has accumulated so much wealth, it is staggering. Let the government do what you should do is what we've come to think. Let the government programs, we pay taxes, don't we? Let these programs fulfill the responsibilities of the church. The government can feed millions. They can give financial aid to millions upon millions, and they can provide housing and clothing and subsidies and food in a far greater way than I can. And this is what the government is saying. Just relax. When you find time, relax. This is the mentality of most professing Christians and non-Christians alike. When it comes to aid and comfort for the needy, the world can't see a great distinction between those in the church and those outside of the church. If this is where you are spiritually, you won't get away with it for long. If you're seeking to understand the Christian life and Christianity as a whole, you'll see that it's not just a Sunday morning ritual. The lack of care that we find in the churches is a direct reflection of our spiritual understanding and compassion. Care for your neighbor is at the heart of it all, and we don't seem to understand that. It's part and parcel of our relationship to Christ. It's part of His heart. And if you look closely... And again, I ask you to think through these things. You'll discover that rebellion against God and a refusal to do what Christ calls us to do is inextricably linked to the corresponding disregard we have for others. This is depicted clearly in the fall of Satan. If you look at Ezekiel 28, you'll see what I'm talking about. Lucifer, the morning star, became Satan, the father of lies. 
you won't find in the Ezekiel passage this, the name of Satan. The first part of the chapter is about the earthly prince of Tyre. The second half deals with the figure who has supernatural attributes and stands behind the earthly ruler as the power behind the throne. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, warns against such principalities and powers when he warns Christians that our warfare is not against flesh and blood. In the context of this chapter, Ezekiel 28, the devil is called the king of Tyre, not the prince of Tyre. And we see this figure was originally the highest of all created beings. He was the anointed cherub. Nobody got anointed in the Old Testament other than a priest or a king. Lucifer was to handle a certain trade. And this is not to be confused to a particular craftsmanship he possessed. It was a work he was apparently called to perform. He was to pass commands of God down to the lower orders of creation, and at the same time pass the worship of the lower order of creation back to God. He acted as the king of creation and the priest unto the Lord, the king of Tyre. He walked on the holy mountain of God. Then came pride. Lucifer forgot where he came from. He was created and placed in the position that he held. He held the worship of others of creation for himself. And he said, look at me, I am so beautiful. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above, above the stars of God and I will make myself like the most high. In Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. The term most high is a particular word Lucifer chose. He could have said, I'll be like the creator, but he didn't. He chose to say the most high. If you think back to the book of Genesis and the first mention of the name, the most high, Abram was returning from his battle with the king. He had rescued Lot. It was then that Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine and blessed Abram of the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, in Genesis 14, 8 through 9. Here is the pride of Satan. God is revealed as El Elyon, the Most High God. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. This is who and what Lucifer wants to be. He's not trying to move God over and share the throne. He wants every thought of God eliminated. He did not simply want to vanquish God. He wants to elim eliminate him altogether. Satan desires to be the most high God. Think of this and how relevant it is to our day. Despots and tyrannical men throughout history accumulate enormous and great power. And their influence can topple nations. The ideologies they embrace have for a goal to eliminate capitalism, free markets, and to enslave people. Why? Because they want to be like God. The overriding goal has been placed in writing, and it is to destroy God. You say that'll never happen. Not here, not in America, no way, not now. My friend, this has been the historical push throughout all of time. The God of creation has been the focus of every nation opposed to God. They have their gods, and they have their ways, and they have their systems. These are the principalities and powers that lust for the place of ascendancy. This is the push of Satan himself. He has greatly used the pen in the thoughts of men like Robespierre, Svengali, Adolf Hitler, Karl Marx, and many, many others. And we stand against his ideas. We war against a spirit of rebellion and these thoughts that they engender. We're not bound by these things because we are free in Christ, and we'll never bow to the tyranny of man. That is the problem. There is an alternative. And we need to recognize this and hold firmly to this. We have Christ, who, existing in the form of God, counted not being on an equal level with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of men 
and being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient, even unto death, yea, the death of the cross. Wherefore also God highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, things on earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now imagine having to live under such oppression as is found under the foot of Satan. Imagine starving in a Russian gulag or freezing. Imagine being bound in a Chinese prison because you held a Bible. Imagine being forced to be educated and re-educated under the oppressive teachings of Marxism and the lies that are so prevalent. Imagine seeing men enact and exercise their brutality and hatred upon their fellow man, beating them and starving them. And you, standing there as a Christian, have to endure. Imagine all of this. Even as a secular man, imagine all of this. And then you discover there's an alternative. There is another way. A way these wicked, these wicked men try to discourage you from, from exploring. They can't invade this way. They can't conquer this way. The whip can't drive it from us. And the thickness of the bars that surround us can't keep it out of our hearts. It's a path to true freedom. Wicked men hate it. But those who are called, those who know it, embrace it. And they're able to stand before lions. Madame Guillon was imprisoned for her faith years ago. And she wrote a poem that says, My cage confines me round. Abroad I cannot fly. But though my wing is closely bound, my heart's at liberty. My prison walls cannot control the flight and the freedom of my soul. The love of God is greater far than any tongue or pen can ever tell, and it goes beyond the highest star and it reaches to the lowest hell. Imagine such an alternative. This is the great alternative. Think about the degree of self-denial Christ, the Son of the Most High God, the spotless Lamb of God, endured by becoming man. He had to come and live in a world of wickedness and impurity, in a swamp of revolting, of revolting sin. A lack of holiness was repulsive, and the depravity that surrounded him was so far removed from the splendor of heaven. We can't wrap our minds about, around this. We cannot even begin to imagine a life without sin. Even our most lavish thoughts are limited by sinful understandings. Paul tells us that eye has not seen, nor has it entered into the heart of man. We can't begin to understand the glory of God. And then we have to stop and think that Jesus Christ left his home and came to earth to die. Living among criminals and thieves and liars, rapists and those that were awaiting execution, Christ walked among us, living as a man. He lived as one who never sinned in thought, word, or deed. Try to imagine what the incarnation meant to Christ. Then go beyond and consider the cross. And we can get emotional, and we can get all sentimental in thinking about it, and we can cry. But we need to get beyond all that. The cross represents the most severe suffering known in that day. The victim who died on the cross slowly died from exposure and suffocation. He drowned in his own bodily fluids. His, much, his muscles reached a point of total fatigue, and he collapsed. In most cases, he was tied to the crossbars. However, Christ, he was nailed to the crossbars. At his incarnation, when he was born, he knew that this was what was awaiting he knew that this would be the climax of his ministry, and he set his face like a flint to face it without flinching. As they were walking on the way going up to Jerusalem, Jesus was walking in front of them. They were amazed, the disciples were. 
And they, they followed, they were kind of afraid because they're heading to Jerusalem and they knew all the problems that had been going on. But Jesus took them aside. He took the 12 aside and he began to tell them the things that were going to happen to him. And he was saying, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man, me, shall be delivered into the chief priest, unto the chief priest and the scribes. And they're going to condemn me to death. And they're going to deliver me unto the Gentiles. And they're going to mock me. And they're going to spit on me. And they're going to scourge me. And then they'll kill me. But after three days, I'm going to rise again. Read that. It's in the book of Mark, chapter 10, 32 through 34. He knew all this, and yet he did not hesitate. He ran, so to speak, towards the fire, not from it. Was he longing to do this? That's a horrible thought. No. He was fully human. Do you think he wanted to suffer in such a way? He dreaded what was about to come. He endured but he had sweat drops of blood. But he endured. He denied himself, even unto the right of life. All for love's sake, Christ became poor. How astounding and unimaginable. God the Creator would turn his head from himself and look at you and me in our suffering and our bondage. He, he would look at us in our deliberate sinfulness and shame and willingly consider our needs as being more important. Do we need to know more? Can we not see this? But men hate this. They deny God with a hatred that has no cause. They say such grace and mercy is unknown and unreal, and they seek to shut the mouths of any and all who dare to utter such things. Why? Because it gives a man who they hold by fear under the chains of their unrighteous ways, they hold in bondage, it gives men hope. And hope does not make us ashamed. It encourages us. In the grand scheme of things, we see the unfolding drama of redemption. We see the unseen battle. It's not an easy thing to live a selfless life, to consider others better than yourself, and to look first to the interest of others. That's not an easy thing to do, and it goes against man's nature. Uh, sin has bound us and locked us into selfishness. Centuries have passed, and cultures have been formed, and they, uh, our environment has formed us to be the people that we have become. What can wash away these things? What can wash away the sinful stains that color our lives? Now there's a battle line between light and darkness. There it is. There's a battle for the souls of men, indeed. But this is not the battle I'm referring to. There's an internal battle. And the point is not where you preach great messages or witness to thousands. That's not what I'm talking about. You have to win the internal battle first. The battle here is in becoming who you are meant to be. Will you love your neighbor and give yourself for your neighbor in the sense that Christ gave himself for you. Now, if you see salvation as simply being a way to avoid hell, your understanding is still blunted, and you're seeing men walking as trees. God deals in quality, not quantity. He wants to see Christ formed in you, not for his personal edification, but for your own good. To know the love of God and experience the fellowship that was lost so long ago, that's his desire for you. You say that you can't do this, you can't live for others, and I would agree 100% with you, nor can I. But God can do this in you and through you, and He will do this as we allow Him to do it. But there's the question, how do you allow Him to do it? Every day, you give yourself to Him. You pray, you seek Him, you obey Him, and you'll see the miraculous happen. If you're going to live for others, there's three things that got to happen, that must happen. Number one, Admit that in yourself, you don't really care for other people like you say you do or think you do. Yourself 
is the king. Your choice will always be Satan's choice rather than the choice of Christ Jesus. Your way will be the way of self-aggrandizement and pride. It will always be harmful to others. Well, how then? I, how can you expect me to do these things? How can I truly, not with a biting of my tongue and a rigid heart, willingly give myself to others and live for others? Well, the first step is to realize you're, pri- you're proud. This is the first step towards humility. The second thing is to humble yourself before God. Peter writes, all of you clothe yourself with humility one towards another, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6. Well, if I do this logically, shouldn't I expect this from others as well? And by saying that, what you're saying is that shouldn't other people be humble toward me as well? Now stop and think. You still have yourself in mind. That's in the forefront of your considerations. If I'm to be humble to others, then others are supposed to be humble towards me, right? That is not the way it works. If others refuse to humble themselves, does that absolve you of your responsibility? Does that alter your calling? How did Christ respond to those who abused him and who refused to act humbly towards him and they ultimately killed him? How did Christ respond to them? Let this mind be in you. To see God aright is to admit your total unworthiness. And if you will say with Peter, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Or with Isaiah, woe to me, I'm, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among people of unclean lips. This is humility. It's an awareness of who you are and who God is. The final step involves a daily fellowship with Christ. Jesus Christ is the source of our lives. And we must stay in close connection to the source. If we're to realize the self-giving life that he advocates, we must do this. Without him, we have to be absolutely convinced that we can do nothing. On the other hand, Paul says, I can do all things through him who gives me the strength. Philippians 4.13. There was an evangelist in China, and he tells about a Christian he once knew in China. The guy was a poor rice farmer living in the hills, and his fields were found high up in the mountains. And every day he would pump water into the patties of new rice so that the rice would grow. And every morning he would return to find that a neighbor who lived down the hill from him had opened up the dikes that held the water in his rice paddies. And the water ran downhill to his individual rice paddies. He was stealing his water. And he was cutting off his livelihood. Well, for a while, the Christian ignored the injustice and refilled his rice paddies and repaired the dikes. And finally he became desperate. He met and he prayed with other Christians. And the Lord gave him a solution. The next day... The Christian farmer got up early in the morning, and he filled his neighbor's rice fields first. Then he attended to his own. Watchman Nee, the Chinese evangelist, tells how the neighbor subsequently became a Christian. His unbelief was overcome by the genuine de- demonstration of Christian humility and Christ-like character that the neighbor showed towards him. So the question comes out, and we have to ask ourselves, can I live for others? Yes. Yes, you can. At work or at home. With friends or enemies and relatives, yes, you can. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not only possible, but it's an important aspect of your calling. How do you do it? Call upon the Lord, and He'll meet you. We 
thank you very much for following along in our study on Philippians, and we hope that you continue as we continue with the study here. You are well appreciated, and we hope that this has been of great benefit to you. Thank you very much.